Thank you, Drew. It's good to see you all, and uh, nice to see some uh, faces we haven't seen for a little while, as well as uh, um, visitors. It's great to have you here, and uh, it's great to be in the building together. It's nice to also have people online in that side of the, inside that little camera, and I've uh, got to remember you're still there in hyperspace, and it's great to have you with us, and hope your journey through hyperspace is good, and uh, we pray that God will bless us all together as we gather around his words. So let's pray for God's help now as we look at the Bible. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there are those online joining in with us, and we pray that you would bless them. And Lord, although we're separated physically, we ask, dear Lord, that they might know the presence of your Holy Spirit joining us together as one body, as we seek to praise you, as we seek to learn from you, as we seek to grow in grace and in the knowledge of you, dear Lord Jesus. So please, we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit to understand the Bible, Lord, but not just to understand it with our heads, but Lord, to see how to put it into action, how to apply it to our lives, and how to follow you, Lord Jesus, more closely as a result. So Lord, be with us now, and we pray for the service at Pelham Street, and Lord, around this country, around this world, from Central Asia to, to Africa, to uh, the Americas, north and south, across this world, to be fellow Christians meeting in different time zones, there in Japan, Lord, in China. Well, Father, we pray for all our dear brothers and sisters. Bless them today, especially where to meet is a fearful thing because there are authorities looking out to find, find them and even imprison them. So we pray for them. Give them courage today as they seek to meet together in various ways. And we ask for your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, please do keep your Bibles uh, open at uh, Amos chapter 9. And uh, we're, we're concluding our series through Amos. Uh, we've had a journey looking at the, the shepherd prophet. And uh, as you know, uh, Amos is the prophet from the south, from Judah, who was told by God to go north to preach a, a message there to the Israel nation. Don't forget there was a civil war about a couple hundred years before, and the north and the south were divided. And so we have someone from the rival part of the, of, the nation, of the two nations going up to the north there to preach a message which wasn't very palatable, uh, which had some very stark warnings uh, and revealed and exposed a lot of faults and failings in the leadership and amongst the ordinary people as well there in the nation of the north. So it wasn't a, an easy message to declare, but he went faithfully. Amos, the shepherd and the uh, gardener, the, the vig, the one who used to... Fig, not big. Fig, used to tend the fig, uh, fig trees and so on. So he went north to do that for the Lord. And the, the subject uh, or the title for the message today is Mountains Dripping with Wine. Mountains Dripping with Wine. That's the imagery that we have here of something really, really wonderful. Now, would you be happy if you went to the Olympics and got bronze? Would you? Would you be happy if you got silver? Gold? Well, I'm sure gold would be the is the top, isn't it? Gold is the top, as you know. But it's interesting, isn't it? The top athletes want nothing but gold, and uh, although they kind of swallow it, uh, as it were, not the not the not the uh, medal. Although they they swallow it, but deep inside you can tell that they really wanted the gold, even though they put on a smile for getting the bronze or the silver. You can understand that when you spent years and years of your life trying to get a gold medal, and you end up getting bronze. But for us, getting bronze or even getting into the Olympics 
even getting into a, a local final of something would be an achievement, wouldn't it? Um, so uh, we, we, we're really uh, amazed at their skills and abilities. But what about that feeling that, well, you know something needs to improve, whether it's your circumstances your, or yourself, but however much you imagine changes for the better, it never quite, quite gets to that dream, does it? Never quite, there's always something that you imagined it would be better than it actually really is in reality. And that is this world, isn't it? This sin-spoiled world. We might have our dreams, but it never is quite as we could imagine it could be. Uh, I remember when our children were little um, and, uh, you know, we're introducing them to things like a, a new musical instrument or, or some toy, some craft activity and things like that. And I used to get really excited looking for a present for them that would encourage them and help them. Uh, and then I'd, we'd buy it for them and then they'd open it up and the excitement and a toy. Uh, and uh, sometimes the toys don't last very long, do they? Um, and sometimes it's not the fault of the child. Sometimes the child loses interest more quickly. And you know, oh, well, that's a shame because I was really excited for them that they got this, but then they lose interest. But sometimes the actual product itself, itself it, there's some, something about it, it's not quite right. Or because I couldn't afford to buy the top top notch, I bought something kind of middle in or lower middle into lower, and you're just hoping it would be nice. But in the end, and you feel really sad. And I've, I've been times when I've really felt sad for my children, thinking, "Oh, I wish that would have been better. I wish I could afford something better for you, or, or something like that." You, you hope you have dreams, but it doesn't quite reach the height of what you expect. And, and sometimes people, even when it is good enough, people give up, don't they? <laughs> because they they lose interest in that particular toy. So even when we have that desire for, to see things improve, to see things get better, to see things achieved, it doesn't often improve as we imagined. And sometimes it's a temporary improvement, isn't it? It lasts for a little while. That new decoration of your room, it looks fantastic, pristine for a while, but then very soon it gets grubby and dirty and it doesn't last. Things in this world are subject to, to being temporary, subject to failure, subject to wearing out, to metal fatigue, and other kinds of failure. Well, we have here in Amos chapter 9 a, a promise of restoration, a promise of repair, a promise of rebuilding. And that's our first point, looking at verses 11 to 12. In that day, the Lord says, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Now, it's in the 70, 750s BC, 750 years before Christ. And from this point, as Amos is preaching, in about 30 years, Israel is going to be invaded by the Assyrian army. These dates are approximate, of course, but uh, in about 30 years' time, Israel will be invaded by the Assyrian army, as predicted here in Amos. The ten northern tribes will be scattered, uh, the, separate, the separate northern nation is going to be a nation no more, and it will never recover as a separate, distinct nation. And then in about another hundred years or so, a similar thing is going to happen to the southern nation of Judah. And this time it's going to be the Babylonian army. And like the north, like the south, God sent his prophets to warn and to tell people to repent, turn back to him, otherwise things are going to happen. They didn't, and the things happened. The disasters happened. So both disasters were warned about uh, many years before those 
took place. And they were the result. The reason behind these disasters was years and years of stubborn rebellion against God, including idolatry, the worship of pagan gods, and all that went with that, sacrificing children, babies to the gods and throwing them into fire and things like that. Uh, there was corruption in the governments, both governments, and also oppression uh, of the poor and the vulnerable. There was selfishness, greedy leadership, all these things and lots of others were going on and the prophets warned and warned and warned. The Lord God will sadly, reluctantly bring judgment on these nations, Israel in the north and then later Judah in the south. But the Lord is not going to judge and then walk away and wash his hands of them as it were. He has a plan to restore, to repair and to rebuild. And so we see this light, this kind of uh, light on the horizon at the end of Amos chapter 9. We've had little glimpses already, haven't we, through Amos. Uh, but here we have a wonderful kind of light coming up, a dawn coming up in the, in the distance. Now, about 538 BC, Jews from Babylon and others, others uh, scattered around the area, were starting to return back to Jerusalem. And it was under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the temple and the walls of Jerusalem were repaired and rebuilt. So these peoples that had been sent into exile, they were returning around this time. It was several kind of phases of return. And Amos predicts this. Amos predicts this event that's going to happen many years later. And other prophets too, like Jeremiah. So for example, Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 7 and to 9, this is what he says. And we can see how the Old Testament prophets align in these predictions. It says, I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise and honor before all nations on earth that bear all the good things I do for it. Here of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I have provided for it. Now notice that the Lord doesn't predict a restoration of two separate divided at enmity nations, does he? But one nation, united. Peoples from the north and from the south, scattered through exile, are going to be brought back. And it's going, they're going to be brought back as one nation. And Amos describes it here in chapter 9, verse 11, as... I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will restore David's fallen shelter. It's going to go back to something like it was under the one leader, one nation under one leader, like King David. So God's restoration is going to unify these divided peoples as they are at the time of Amos. They're going to be brought back together. Well, the prophecies came true. The Bible and archaeology tells us so. And Jews returned from to their homeland from exile from their scattered conditions around the world of the day and the walls of jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt and god blessed this regathering there was an answer uh, to the prayers of god's people there was a restoration according to the promise of god's word but sadly there's that feeling something not quite right some of the older men of Judah, who remembered the original temple, who'd come back, those that heard stories of the temple as it was. When the temple was rebuilt, it's not quite, it's not what it was, is it? It's not as it was. 
And the nation, that the people never really got back to how they, what they were even at the heights at the time of David. You see, something wasn't right. The people didn't, hadn't fundamentally changed. The good times were good, but they were temporary. Em other empires came. Other empires came and battered Judah and the walls. Empires came and went. The Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. The Roman Empire as well. Judah survived, just about, sometimes by the skin of its teeth, but it was a rocky road and not the great permanent restoration, repair and rebuild that the prophets seem to have indicated. But God promised there would be restoration, repair and rebuilding, like it was before. Second heading is this. Israel goes international. We have a, a prophecy here of how Israel goes international. Verse 11 and 12 again. The Lord says, I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Now think about that. So in this restoration, in this rebuilding, there's going to be the inclusion of other nations. Inclusion of other nations that bear my name. Now, Edom was a nation that descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. But there was enmity again between Edom and, and Israel. Uh, and it was a thorn in Israel's side for, for many years. But even Edom is going to be brought into the, if you like, the commonwealth. Even Edom is going to be brought into, the, into this restoration. And not only that, but other nations too. And add to that the prediction that other nations will bear the Lord's name will bear the Lord's name. This is an amazing turnaround. Israel is going to be decimated. It's the, the small nation in the middle of many other hostile pagan nations and empires. But there's a time when Israel is going to be a kind of a, a hub, a kind of a center that embraces other nations. There's going to be that hub that includes others, other nations that will bear the Lord's name. Now, it used to be the case that Israel, Judah, was the nation that bore the Lord's name. They carried his name, and all the other nations were typified by, by their pagan gods, by the names of their pagan gods. It was us and them, the people of God and the people not of God, the people of the pagan gods. However, it's going to be, in this prediction, us and us. It's not going to be us and them anymore. It's going to be us and us. Uh, Drew was mentioning earlier on about the, the lovely sight of different nations gathering together for sports in the Olympics. Something like this, and even greater, is going to happen. Now, how will this be fulfilled? Now, Israel, at its greatest, at the time of David and Solomon, did have a big impact on the nations around it, and good relationships with the nations around it. And uh, there was peace, the borders, especially during the time of Solomon, for a period of time at least, there was peace and prosperity in the nation of, of Israel, as it was united under Solomon and David before him. But it was rarely, even at its height, we think of what David got up to when he made his, mis made his mistakes. When we think of Solomon, how he turned his back on the Lord later on. We see that Israel was never a great example of godliness. And it had never become a global empire. It had never become truly great, as the Bible seemed to indicate that it would be one day. Is God not keeping his promises? After the restoration, after the return from Babylon, and the, as the nations, as the Jews gathered from the nations, 
It never really got to what the prophet seemed to indicate. And it didn't last. But don't we believe God? God's going to keep his promise. Somehow, it's going to come true. Somehow, God will keep his promise. There's kind of indications, kind of indications that God can turn things around. But so far, we haven't got it yet. Another thing that we see in Amos chapter 9 is the uh, prediction of abundant fruitfulness and settled living. And we're looking at verses 13 to 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. You know, the, the height of the, the image of peace and prosperity for an Israelite would be to have some land, to grow your own food, to grow some vines, and to be able to sit under your fig tree in your backyard, drinking the, the new wine and enjoying the, the plenty that God provided. That's the kind of stereotypical image of a, an idyllic situation. And, and many of us uh, enjoy that, don't we, with our garden gazebos and things like that, and sitting when the sun shines, and we can enjoy a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, in, in the, or maybe a glass of wine, I don't know, you know under, under that, in that lovely circumstance with the sun shining on our faces. Well, this is the, the picture that we have here. The people are going to plant, and the harvest we see is going to come before the planters are finished. There's going, this is a picture of abundance. If there are 10, if you imagine 10 grapevines, 10 rows of grapevines to plant, and before the last rows are, are, are even planted by the, the planters, the first rows will have already produced fruit, and the harvesters will be passing by the planters with, with, with baskets full of fruit, of grapes. So we get this image of the, of the, the reapers overtaking the plough, the ploughman. We've got the, this abundant provision. This abundant, uh, wonderful provision. It's a kind of a supernatural image, isn't it? It can't, how could it be possibly physically true? It's a kind of a supernatural image, or at least a poetic image of abundance here. As well as the image of the mountains flowing with freshly squeezed wine. Picture that. Mountains flowing with freshly squeezed wine. Not only that, the people are going to live in rebuilt homes. The homes were destroyed in the, uh, in the invasion by the Assyrians. But now they're going to rebuild their homes. They're going to plant gardens. They're going to enjoy their own fruit. It's a picture of, of being settled and enjoying the abundance. And more than that, it is the Lord that has done this. It's God who's planted Israel permanently. Verse 15, look at that. Verse 15. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them says the Lord, your God. But after the return from exile, Israel was dispossessed again. It was uprooted. How will this come true? God keeps his word, doesn't he? How is this, in what sense, in what way, will this come true? We know in AD 70, the, the Romans came and destroyed the temple that Herod had built and renovated it was there was a temple there before but he'd added to it and, and made it uh, even more majestic but it was all destroyed the walls of jerusalem broken down you know for for something to happen to last god's got to do it it's got to be god 
God says, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord. So if this is going to happen, it's going to, be, it's going to have to be God doing it. And Psalm 127 verse 1 tells us those wise words that are good for all of our lives as Christians. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. So it's a reminder to, to rest in the Lord, trust in the Lord, seek his blessing upon all that we do. Because unless the Lord builds it, the builders labor in vain. But again, how and when will this prophecy come true? How and when will the prophecies, other prophecies come true that look towards something permanent, something glorious, something that will last, something that will fulfill the hopes and dreams of God's people? Well, when the Jews came back from Babylon and, and the other nations, it seemed to them that this was the answer. This was, this was God providing the, the, the fulfillment of these prophecies. Imagine you're in their shoes. You've been living in a foreign land in exile, and, and now King Cyrus amazingly has said that you can come back to your homeland. A pagan king has said that. And so, yeah, you pack your belongings up, and you, you go back home to the, to the city of Jerusalem, to the land of Judah, and you get involved in this rebuilding. Amazing miracle of God that the nation was rebuilt at that time. But as I said, it, even that didn't reach full expectations. It didn't last. And some of the old men looked at the rebuilt temple and thought, it's good, but it's not like what it was. Now at the time of Jesus, let's go to, we've gone from BC time, Old Testament history, now to the time of Jesus. And at the time of Jesus, many people were hoping that he was the king who would do this, who would bring this restoration, this rebuilding and repairing. There were people looking forward to a Messiah. And when they heard about Jesus and the, the, the gossip went around that, that Jesus was the Messiah, it could be him. And this is why we get the crowds following Jesus, thinking that he was going to be the new king who would defeat the Romans and rebuild the walls and rebuild all that had been broken down and damaged and make it permanent and last forever. The walls that were existing at the time of Jesus and the temple that was existing at the time of Jesus didn't last. In AD 70, the Roman Empire devastated and destroyed Israel and the temple. Now, Christians believe variations of how the future will unfold. Some believe in a literal thousand year reign of Christ on the earth, where Israel will be literally restored as a nation for that time, as the, as the, as the prophecies seem to indicate. Some don't interpret it that way, and there are different views. But something's going to happen somewhere, isn't it? Because God has promised it. So how and when will that be all be fulfilled? Because even if there is a, a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, the Bible does talk about uh, judgment and, uh, and the new heavens and the new earth and so on. So even that's not going to last as a physical structure, even if that did take place. Well, let's have a look then. Let's under the fourth heading here. Let's look at that day according to the explanation in the New Testament. So we're looking at verses 11 and 12. Now, that day is a phrase that we're going to consider for a while. And that day in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, doesn't necessarily refer to a single day in the diary. So when the Bible says in that day or the day of the Lord, it doesn't necessarily refer to, if you like, um, the 15th of October uh, on 19-something or 2000-something. 
It's talking about, if you like, a period of time or a time frame, which could be very short or it could be quite long, but it's a time frame when God is bringing about his plans and purposes to fulfillment. So that day is not necessarily a literal day, 24 hours. Verse 11 says, In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will will rebuild it as it used to be. Now, going to the New Testament, and let's look at John chapter 10. Now, we've seen how that Amos predicted there's going to be, if you like, a gathering of nations. Edom is going to come into the commonwealth. It's going to be part of the possession of the restored Israel. And other nations, too, are going to bear the name of the Lord. What does Jesus say in John chapter 10, verse 11? He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So we see how how Jesus is the one who knows his sheep. Now the Jews regarded themselves as the, the Lord's sheep. His flock, the Jews would have said, we're God's sheep, the rest you're not. You're, you're not of the God's flock. But the Lord Jesus is saying here that there are other sheep in other pens, other people from, from different backgrounds, other people from different nations who are going to be brought together into one flock. He's predicting that here, that he's going to do this. And he's telling us that he's going to give his life to save them so they can be part of the flock. Verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. So he's speaking to Jews. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So we can see here what Jesus is saying aligns with what the Old Testament prophets say. In particular here, Amos chapter 9. That there are going to be other sheep brought into the fold to become under one shepherd. And the good shepherd, the one who gives his life for them. Jesus is going to bring about through his own death a family flock from all peoples. A family flock from all peoples. And that means that whatever background we're from, whatever nation we're from, through faith in Jesus Christ, we're brought into one family. There is no racism in true Christianity. There's no racism in true Christianity because we're brought into one flock. There's still national distinctives and cultural distinctives which you can celebrate and enjoy. But in Christ, we are one flock. Now, look at Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus is speaking to Peter in front of the other disciples. Peter has given that confession. He believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And uh, Matthew 16, verse 18 says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So here Jesus promises to build his church. 
And that's the thing for you to remember particularly. I will build my church. And then John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Verse 20. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple because they were looking at the physical temple, the temple of stones around them, the temple that Herod had renovated. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So Jesus was going to die, but he was going to rise again. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Something was going to happen to him, of course, his death. But then his resurrection is predicted here. And when we go through the rest of the New Testament, you see that there's a reference to the body of Jesus, not just his physical body that he came and lived and died to save us with, but the building of the body of the church. There's going to be a, a building. And then the, the, there's another image of the church as the temple of God being built. And so we see Jesus as the builder, a builder. So Jesus is the temple builder. The one who's going to bring restoration. The one who's going to rebuild. The one who's going to restore. Now, looking at Acts chapter 15, uh, we see how the, the apostles there see the fulfillment directly of Amos 9 verse 11. And they see the fulfillment of Amos 9 verse 11 as the new age brought in by Jesus and begun at Pentecost. So Acts chapter 15 and verse 12. Now, there's an issue going on here. Remember, I said that in Christ, there's no, in, true, in Christ, true, true Christianity, there's no racism. Well, there's an issue going on in the church of the day because the, the Jewish Christians, the Christians from a Jewish background, were seeing people who were non-Jews, Gentiles, becoming Christians. And there was that kind of racist racism coming up in their hearts, thinking, well, these Gentiles, they're not from our nation, and yet they're claiming to be followers of Jesus, the Messiah. And it does, just doesn't seem right that they can just believe in Jesus and be saved like us. And so they were struggling with these, these thoughts. Should non-Jews be accepted as the Lord's people? Verse 15, of, uh, yeah, jump to verse 15 of Acts 15. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins, I will rebuild and I will restore it. Now, do you recognize that? Amos 9. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins, I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore... As the, the apostles comment, uh, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So that racist attitude, it's rubbish. We should make, not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. But can you see how they see the fulfillment of Amos 9, verse 11? That it's Jesus who is the, the rebuilder, the restorer, the repairer. It's Jesus who is bringing this family of nations under his kingship, under his lordship. And we see also in the New Testament that Jesus is the new David. Jesus is the new David. Amos 9 verse 11 says, in that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and rebuild it as it used to be. 
So we see how God promises restoration and rebuilding of the kingdom of David, not the kingdom of Jeroboam, who was the current king when Amos uh, was, was preaching and prophesying. But David is long gone, way before Amos, way before Jeroboam. So it's not a literal David that is predicted here, but a figurative David. And God promises a restoration of a kingdom linked to old King David. Now, who is all this pointing to so far? Can you see how it's pointing to Jesus? How all these things are converging on and being fulfilled ultimately in and through Jesus. And we see in his predictions, the predictions about his birth in Luke chapter 1. Uh, it says that he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, or his great, 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 great grandfather, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And then Luke chapter one, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he said, through his holy prophets long ago. And then Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph, it says, belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So we can see the fulfillment of the prophecies of Amos 9 all converging on one person, and that is Jesus Christ, of his line, human line of descent from the line of King David, who is going to come as a good shepherd, who's going to give his life for the sheep, he's going to give his life to save us sinners, and he's going to draw us together into one flock, one family of different nations, people that bear the name of the Lord. He's going to rebuild, he's going to build a church, he's promised. He's going to be the builder, not a builder of a physical wall or a physical temple, but a builder of people. His resurrection from the dead is the key rebuilding, as it were, bringing life. As we were thinking in the children's talk earlier on, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. His resurrection from the dead is the ultimate resurrection, the one that, that is the, if you like, the, the blazes a trail for all future resurrection, the one that is the assurance that we can have life through him, that we can be rebuilt physically, yes, in when Jesus returns of our new bodies but we can be rebuilt spiritually. So we see all things converging on Jesus. Now, in Isaiah's prophecy, about chapter 9, and this was uh, about 700 years before Christ. So this is another prophecy. Now, you sure, I'm sure you've heard of this at Christmas time. It's Isaiah 9, verse 6. This clinches the deal that Jesus is the one who is the, the focus for all the fulfillment of these prophecies. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that day on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, you know, that was written 700 years before Christ was born. So even just on a way that the Bible holds together, the way it joins together and is in harmony, even that itself is an amazing thing that if we're not yet a Christian should surely make us wake up and think, I've got to investigate this book. 
I've got to investigate about this person, Jesus. But that's let alone the archaeology and the other historical accounts and all the other things that we could add in to verify and to validate the, the, the Christianity and the person of Jesus. So if you're not yet a Christian, I really hope and pray that you'll take it seriously and consider it even just on the way that the Bible holds together, which is an amazing thing. All the threads tie together. But we can certainly see that that day in Amos chapter 9, well, it's because of, it's centered on, and it's all about Jesus. So let's um, sum up then, and that's our, our final heading as we come to draw to a close to Amos chapter 9. And again, as we've gone through this series, you may st still have some questions, uh, things that you uh, thought, well, what does that mean? Or could you explain that further? Please do get in contact with me. I'd glad gladly try to help you uh, or find someone who can if I can't. So please, please do. But let's sum up Amos. We've seen basically that, that human behavior, rejection of God, ill treatment of others is serious to God. God warns the people time and time again about it. We've also seen as we've gone through Amos that God must act as judge in his world, that God is a holy God and that he must act as judge in his world. But we've also seen this, that God is patient, that God repeatedly warns, that God encourages us to repent and to turn to, to him. Seek me and live, he says. Turn to me. Seek me. God is patient, merciful. But we also see that judgment will come on unrepentant sinners. And that is something that will be devastating. We see a devastating picture here in Amos of what is going to happen to the people of Israel who continue with their complacency, who do not repent of their sins. It's going to be a devastating consequence. But we've also seen in Amos that there is real hope for those who repent. And we also see that there's an ultimate hope presented before people of restoration, repair, and rebuilding in a time to come. Now, history tells us your health tells you, your circumstances tell you that the human kingdoms, human individuals, human beings were always fragile, aren't we? How a tiny, tiny virus that can get through the tiniest of holes can devastate our lives and throw us all into turmoil and fear and panic. How a strong person, an athlete, could get cancer. How a nation that seems so proud, so powerful, so accomplished, the rot can set in. It can morally decline. It can fall apart. How empires come and go. How an empire, empires of the past seem as if they're going to last forever. But something happens. Whether it be the Greek, the Roman, or whatever empire there's ever been. They come and they go. They can be well-intentioned, hopefully. At the best, they can be well-intentioned. But they are a fragile shelter. A fragile shelter. But the promise here in Amos is that the restored shelter of David, the restored kingdom of David, that it will envelop other nations. It is going to be wonderfully fruitful and it is going to last forever. So that's a summary of Amos.
But this is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of what Jesus came to do. Amos itself, although it's dealing with a particular time of history for the ancient Israelites, it is itself pointing to Jesus. We see that how sin is serious. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That there are consequences to our behavior. There is a hell. There are devastating consequences to sinful behavior against God, against other people. We've not loved God as we should. We've not loved each other as we should. And there are consequences to these things because this is God's world and God is a holy God and God is a judge. And there comes a point when God must say enough is enough. There's a tipping point in our individual lives, in the history of this world. And God, to be God, must act as judge. And we also see, as it happened in in the history of Amos here, that sin brings pain and suffering to people's lives. We, we've heard, haven't we, the, the, the expo exposing of the, the way the leadership of, of the people of the time, the lead, how the leadership were trampling on the vulnerable, causing pain, slavery to poor people, causing misery to those who are weak and vulnerable. And that's what sin does. Sin brings pain and suffering to our lives. It makes us fragile. It takes away our sense of highest purpose and meaning to life. Ultimately, because it separates us from God. And it also separates us from each other. It causes racism. It causes hatred, division in nations, in communities, in families. It breaks homes. Sin has consequences and God must act. But also we see, again, as in Amos, that the gospel tells us there is a gift of life. Turn to me and live, God said to the people through Amos. And he says to you and I, the gift of God is life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's hope there, real hope for those who will turn to him. There's a gift, and it's a gift of life. A gift of forgiveness. A gift of new life to come in heaven and a change that he can work in us in the in-between. And it, it begins with a rebuilding of our lives here and now. It will go on to even better things, won't it? Greater things and things that will last forever. So when we become a Christian, we are taking a very serious step, no doubt. It is a step of commitment that could put us against people who don't want to be Christians around us, old friends even family members, our society that doesn't like us being Christians. And that is a step and a cost to weigh up. But to know peace with God, to know that your sins are forgiven, to know that God is at work in your life, changing you, strengthening you, helping you to change for the better, knowing that there's a, that a difference that you can make in your community, in your family, in you, where you live, knowing that you can be involved in things that will last forever. The people who've won the medals in the Olympics, their fame will last for a while, but they won't always be remembered. Maybe by close family for several generations, maybe in some history, dusty history book, they'll still be there. But there'll be someone who'll break their records anyway, and it will be forgotten. That's what happens in this world. The best that we can achieve doesn't last forever. But becoming a Christian means we're involved in things that will last forever, things that are permanent. We look forward to a new heavens and a new earth where things will be forever and we'll be with the Lord and there'll be the goodness and the blessing and the bounty that will be for eternity. And also all Christians from, from every nation and background become part of the royal kingdom of King David's greater son, Jesus. 
We come into a kingdom, into a family that is being built now, that will continue to grow and develop and will emerge in its fullness when Jesus returns. So you can be part of that, part of that family and that, that family, that kingdom that will last forever. So let me ask you as I close, do you want to be part of something international? Do you want to be part of something that brings peoples together in the family? Do you want to be part of something that is history wide? Because even when Christians die, they go to heaven, so they're still part of the church. Do you, want to, do you want to be part of something that God is doing history-wide? Do you want to be part of something that will last forever? Something that is permanent and solid. When all the statues and all the medals and all the books of this world will be gone. Something that will last forever. Now imagine a wooden pier. A wooden pier. The best that this life can offer you are brightly colored planks on an empty pier. But those planks are rotten. You can fall through at any time. And at the end of that pier, there are only sharp rocks below. You can enjoy the colors of the planks for a while. You can enjoy the excitement of treading on the planks and maybe getting away with things. But at the end, you'll either fall through the planks or get to the end where the sharp rocks below. What does Jesus offer you as an alternative to that? He offers life in all its fullness. There are beautiful things about that life here and now in the love and the grace and the peace and the joy that God works and develops in us, the fruit that develops now in our lives, but it is only going to get better. And we see this picture of mountains dripping with wine. Abundance, fruitfulness, spiritual fruitfulness, blessings that are just pouring down the sides of the mountains. And it's something that will last forever and it will never be uprooted. So what are you going to choose? A pier with maybe bright planks, but with rotten, with rottenness and with sharp rocks below. Or the life that Jesus offers, the fullness that he offers, and the eternity of good things that will never end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've been able to look through the series in Amos, Lord, and learn from this old, old book. But Lord, we thank you that it is so relevant to today. Lord, there's so many things that we've seen in it that are relevant to our lives personally, as a church, as families, and also as a nation even, when we consider the, the challenge to leaders, the challenge to fairness and justice in society. But Lord, we thank you most of all that it points to Jesus. It shows us that he is the ultimate restorer, rebuilder, repairer. Lord, we pray for every heart in this room. Help us to trust Jesus. Help us, Lord, to follow him. Maybe with a renewed love, a renewed devotion, seeing that he is the center of all that you're doing. And we need him. Maybe for the first time, we'll take that step of faith to recognize that Jesus is the Savior that we need and that we will begin right now to repent of our sin, to turn to you, Jesus, for your forgiveness, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, we ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would work this message into our hearts. And even now, if we're still resisting Jesus, we pray you'd melt our hearts. 
to see the one who loved us and gave himself for us, and that we might turn our hearts to him by your grace in love and trust. We ask this in his name. Amen.